I need to know everything Who in the what and the where I need everything Trust me, I hear what you're saying But I like it's new what you're telling me I'm curious, George, I hop in the Porsche There's five and a horse, I'm ready for war I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost I need to know everything Hello and welcome to JK Plus One. I am not your host, Peter Thomas Fornatel. I'm not coming to you from the Brooklyn Bunker. I'm Jonathan Kinchin, and uh, we got a fun show today. I'm really, really excited to have this person on. I'm a little role reversal, um, and I think it should be a lot of fun to get some uh, some fun stories and, and also some, some thoughts about someone that I, I would imagine if you're listening to this show, you've listened to his show. Um, He's on a lot more than I am, <laughs> which, which is hard to do with these, these days and age, this day and age with, uh, with all the Fox during the week and, but, uh, fun weekend last weekend, tis the law got the job done for, uh, for Sacatoga and, and, and New York breads all over the world. So that was fun to watch. And, and just kind of a reminder that we're, we're, we're trending back in the right direction of seeing some of these big races at these big racetracks that we're so used to might be a little different, might be different time schedules and might be different, uh, in terms of, of, uh, of distances and, and, and the normalcy that we're used to, you know, throughout the year. But, uh, this one is, uh, the Belmont running is, it was a big reminder, big weekend coming up at Belmont. And then, uh, man, we're, we're three weeks away, I think maybe ish close to Saratoga. So that should be a ton of fun as well. And we hadn't even had the Met Mile yet, which will be July 4th. Looking forward to that as well. Um, housekeeping, housekeeping, uh, subscribe, a little purple podcast app in your uh, in your Apple iPhone. If you don't have an iPhone, what are you doing? Uh, it's a, it's always a terrible sign when you get those green texts from someone. I'm always like, oh, here we go. Uh, you can't trust people that have the green text. So uh, you got to be careful with that. You're ruining group. You're ruining you're ruining group messages across the world. So we should do a someone should do a movement for that to to get rid of the green text. So um, step your game up. iPhones really aren't that expensive. So not being elitist either. Um, I won't uh, take too much time. We got a, a pretty long episode, nothing crazy. I think maybe two hours and 15 minutes, 210 or something like that, uh, with a nice end to uh, talking some food. So I I, uh, I say, I repeat a lot of these, this sentiment, but I, w- I want to I um, elaborate on it just a little bit more before we start. Uh, this person is someone that I have um, always admired and someone that... Uh, I really do feel like there's a handful of people that are responsible for bringing me into this game and, and allowing me to to uh, to grow in this game when my curiosity started and, and my interest in it and giving me a uh, an opportunity to continue to learn all the different aspects and and and, and the guest today Steve Bick has, has done a great job for in that regard for me and, and for others as well. Um, just some of the segments he's had on his show have been things that have kind of molded me and molded my interest in this game and, and taught me so much that I just wouldn't have had access to if it wasn't for the uh, the 15 hours a week that Steve does. And uh, just the, you know, I specifically can remember the just all the, the derby conversations leading up and uh, talking about, you know, I remember Animal Kingdom came up on his show on how well Animal Kingdom was working and, um and untappable and, and, and American Pharaoh and, and the list just goes on of, of all the information that Steve provided and, and really, um, really allowed me, like I said, to grow in this game with all the information. So I, you know, everyone I've had on has been an honor and a pleasure, but you know, th- this one has a different, a different feel to it just because, 
you'll you'll hear at the beginning of the show. I, I was I was a I was a religious listener, and I and I listen as much as I can now when I can, and obviously catching the archives and whatever. But um, I encourage you if you haven't listened to Steve's show to check it out. So, without any further ado, Steve Bick, I I, I got to tell you, I, I don't think I imagined twelve years ago that I would ever have you on my show. But uh, nonetheless, I'm extremely uh, glad to have you on. Delighted to be on. And when you say 12 years, that's how long I know you? That's how far back no. this goes? <laughs> that's how long I know you. <laughs> I think that, I mean, I was thinking about it the other day. I'm trying to remember the first time I started listening to the show. And I, I have to feel like it, ha- it started like, oh, man, I, I think it had to have been like, 2009 at least when, when I went to my first derby I'm pretty sure I was already listening to the show um and I actually had a funny thing that I had, I had remembered a story I wanted to tell that like for the longest time I used to just get the 30-day serious trials and just make up email addresses and then it would expire and I'd make up another email address and then it expired I'd make up another email address that's great over and I mean if there's some guy in the world named John Williams one two three that is so mad because every email address has been taken, uh, I I just that's what I did for. I mean, it had to be two or three years. I just I just kept doing that over and over and over again. Oh, that is funny. Uh, I guess people could do that now. They can do that with with the Roberts television trial. They 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 can watch. They can sign up, get five days free, and, and try the same thing. I guess maybe that maybe that's it. The funny thing about the serious end of it is that you could pretty much, you know, write your own write your own deal uh, with with serious. You know, they uh, we get one for Tina's car. I get you know one one free subscription. Not not one for any car that we've got. So I pay for one and, and we get one free and every so often it'll run out and they'll call you and, and they'll try to say, listen, how about, uh, you know, how about a little something, you know, for, for the effort, uh, you know, Hey llama, you know, for the family. Oh man. That's, that's funny. And then I guess, but at some point, I don't remember exactly when it was, you probably do at some point you switched where you had the, the live stream, was available on the website where you could just listen to it live on the site. You could always, you could always listen uh, on the stream. Oh. Yeah. Oops. Yeah. 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 Look at me. Yeah, I was, I, look at, I wasted all those email addresses for nothing. <laughs> when, when I was, uh, when I was coaching and teaching, man, I used to put my phone in my pocket with a little serious app. And I'd have my my headset run up through like my shirt and have just one ear in. I'd be listening to the show while I was while I was in government class, facilitating <laughs> that's, that's facilitating government class. So um, it was always a lot of fun. How how many how long have you been doing the show? How 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 many years are we in on you doing at the races with Steve Vick? I got involved with the show in its first year, and it started in July of two thousand and five. And I was contacted in November of 05 and uh, first was invited to do some handicapping. And then in, in very short order, it just so happened my mother was down in Boynton Beach and she was sick. She wanted to have Thanksgiving down in Florida instead of coming home to Connecticut to uh, our house in, in Manchester, family house. And so we all went down to Boynton and I, I reached out to John Parada 
and JJ Gracie. And I'd been on maybe two or three weeks at that point. And I said, you know, I'm going to be in the area. I said, I'd love to come to the studio and meet everybody. And, you know, I, I can sit in for a few days that way, if you'd like. And they said, sure. And so I, I got to go into the studio. And <laughs> after one show, John Parada said to me, would you like to co-host? And <laughs> so I, I jumped at the chance. So that was 2005. And then in 2007, uh, JJ had a couple of other projects and, and he went off to do those. And John Parada said to me, if you want to go on with the show, you know, it's, it's yours to do with whatever you want. So uh, at that point, it became at the races with Steve Bick and that's what 13 years ago. So, uh, and in fact, you know, now that you, now that you bring this up today happens to be also the 10 year anniversary of when the show started as a morning show, when we moved from four to seven in the afternoon to nine to noon. It just so happens today's the anniversary. Wow. See, I did that on purpose. I had, I had no idea. How how was I? Did, so I wasn't a listener when it was an afternoon show. How was the structure of that show? I mean, obviously, we, everyone knows what the show is like now. But how was the structure different when it was an afternoon show? By all rights, it wasn't that much different. It was still what I identify it as, a, you know, a, a industry news magazine. Uh, and as a morning show, you know, I think of the show as as kind of the Today Show for horse racing. It was basically the same format, honestly. the The review beginning of the week, uh, all kinds of news and industry information, the pedigree stuff, the uh, horse health today. Doctor Alday's been around from day one. Uh, then into preview, and then the big Friday weekend show. It, that format hasn't really changed. Those are the, the those are the the bones and we would also be able obviously to play races in the afternoon. And so, you know, there'd be some on the fly handicapping and we would pick up races that were, you know, interesting especially when we were at Saratoga, when we would broadcast the show from Saratoga, that was that period was particularly fun. And I think the show picked up a lot of momentum in those years when we would do it from the back of the barbecue, the Carolina barbecue stand that I ran. And that was very special because there were just trainers kind of wandering back and forth from the front side of the track back over to the Oklahoma. And I'd wave them over and, or I, you know, I text them if I knew they were, you know, heading in one direction or the other. So sometimes we would get We'd get trainers coming back from a win. Other times we'd get them while they were walking over to saddle a horse. I mean, it made it made for some very fun, impromptu radio. And and then there was the whole background scene at the barbecue that was that was kind of fun. Uh, that was that was a special period. Uh, and then they Sirius wanted uh, to do something different. I guess they needed the channel at the time for they were in the process of of adding some national type you know sports talk stuff and so you know they said we don't have room in the afternoons and i said well how about in the mornings they said you want to do a morning show i said sure why not 
And that was that. And and then it, it took me about three days to realize the morning had so many more possibilities and had tremendous benefit to being the lead in to the race day. So I, I've come to love it. I mean, and, and one of the other things about it was if the show was four to seven, I spent all day long, literally all day preparing for the four o'clock. And as a result, you know, you couldn't even really enjoy the racing by being a nine to noon. I, I, I'm still doing the same kind of preparation, but I get to enjoy the racing in the afternoon much more. I get to play more. So th- there's there's so much about it that I, I, I've come to prefer. I didn't necessarily expect to, but uh, I, I think it's been good for the show to, to be on in the morning. Absolutely. I mean, I think that part of the, you know, one of the things, the reason I fell in love with your show is I thought it was a, I thought and still is, I thought, I think it's a, it's a, it's a, you know, Pete always describes it as the, if you want to become a racing insider, the fastest way to do so is by listening to at the races with Steve Bick. And I, I agree with that. And I take it to like the next level is there's so many handicapping opinions that I developed over time by having, having listened to the conversations you have with guys after the races talking about, you know, well, we had this issue with her because she doesn't like this or she did this. And then we decided we were going to do that. I was going to do this, but I knew she wasn't going to like that. And then I could just kind of just all those things that you could just, as a horse player, I was just tagging those things in my head. And then when the horse came back, I remember, Oh, well, Baffert was on and he said that she hates the inside or whatever it might be. Um, I felt like that was a huge part of, of why I fell in love with the show. And then just becoming familiar with all of the different aspects when it comes to breeding and the sales and there's so much stuff that like I know about now, but I had no idea then. I just, I think that, you know, it's a lot to consume, I think for a new player, but to me, it's like, it's, it's instrumental in, in, in new people coming to the game. That's a great framework because the approach and my my interest and my you know, direction for what we do and and for you know every conversation is to benefit people's understanding of the game and enjoyment of it in whatever capacity they're they're drawn into it and first and foremost is is the horse player and so those discussions with trainers and with Dr. Alday and with Sid Fernando and with regulators and with every different you know, portion of the industry, there's something in there if people are willing to, to listen. Uh, you know, there's people that say to me, oh, I don't enjoy the pedigree conversation. Well, you're making a mistake because you're going to, by osmosis, you're going to pick up clues about sire lines and about families and about what that might portend for their offspring. And invariably, you know, you you hear nuggets and you hear little things that even if you're not, you know, consciously looking for them you you just kind of pick it up and to me it's the the essence of 
understanding the sport. It, there's just there's just so much. There's so many different ways to get interested and engaged by it. Uh, right. But there's so many layers. You you just you just keep learning, and you get to a certain point in whatever arena it is that that has drawn you into the game that you you know you feel proficient, and that's to me the the you know the real core charge of what the show is supposed to be doing. It's supposed to be helping people better understand the sport and the industry uh, uh, because it's very complex and it's very difficult. And the more you are open to, you know, to hearing all the different voices and all the points on the compass, the better understanding you'll ultimately have of the sport. Right. And I think that like, you know, I always tell people that, that we all have the past performances. Everyone kind of has that, right? Everyone understands the wired, the last speed figure. Everyone understands third off a layoff. Everyone understands blinkers on or off. Everyone understands Chad Brown and on turf and Bob Baffert on dirt. Everyone sees that. But I think that when you can broaden your horizon to have that one little nugget that helps you make that decision, that, that is an important decision in a sequence or in a, in a race itself that other people who are just looking at the base of information aren't making. That's where your edge comes in. It's hard to find an edge in this game anymore because the information is so prevalent. Like you said, you've got 15 hours of you a week. You've got, you know, Pete and I, you've got XBTV. We can watch the workouts. You've got the workout reports. You've got time form sheets, rags, thoroughgraph, buyer speed figures, other stuff. That's not good. <laughs> but um, that I won't name that you know what I'm saying there's there's so many different things that where does your edge come in and I think that just some of that behind the scenes stuff understanding you know hearing uh, Andy talk about on the show about how it's hard to make a figure at a certain racetrack because the run-up is different those are the little things that when you look at that race from that racetrack and the figure seems high when everyone else is betting because it's high you have an edge and you're not going to catch those things if you don't kind of you know, submerge yourself in the game. And, and I think that your show is a perfect, perfect place for that. Um, so much that I've learned. I just like hearing Tony Black all those times talk about so many things about the rider and horse that, you know, I never would have known. And I've been lucky enough to spend a lot of time with Richie and Gary and get to pick up some of that stuff, but not everyone has that opportunity. So um, is there a segment on your show that you – that you are, is there a segment that you don't have on your show that you kind of have always wanted to have and you'd like to get? Uh, not that, not that, you know, pops in my head uh, immediately. I mean, if it, it, there's, there's things that, there's things that happen and I'll know right away, well, I'll, I'll save this for Tony. And, you know, I'll bring this up, you know, if there's an injury, uh, I'll, I'll bring, you know, that's when I'll reach for Dr. Alday and he'll, he'll explain it. Uh, we had a, the situation this week, uh, Saturday at, at Royal Ascot, where Kodiak, who is not going to be well known to North American audiences, they, people have seen the, you know, seen Kodiak in the pedigrees, but 
Kodiak had three winners on Saturday, the two two-year-olds, and uh, uh, there was one more. And I, you know, I'll let Sid riff on that. And if there's anything that happens, I, I'll find an avenue, uh, and I'll simply reach for anybody in the industry who can address the topic. Uh, if it's not something that you know, immediately matches up with existing regular uh, visitors. Uh, the There's an example, actually. There's an example from the pandemic that I think fits this well. There was the big Fauner Park, the first of, of Fauner's highly publicized foursats with the, the Dinsdale pick five. And there was the disqualification. Was it, was it the DQ or was it a non-DQ? Uh, it was <laughs> now I can't a remember. D, I, I, it, whatever it was, it made me mad. Um, <laughs> yeah, you, yeah, I think it, it was a DQ. Yeah. It, and, and people went berserk and they right away, were questioning the quality and the ability of the stewards in Nebraska. Well, that that group of stewards happens to have maybe 90 years of combined experience stewarding races. What what people watching that track what they were missing and what they didn't understand was the bull ring and how a three quarter track, a three quarter mile oval was something completely different. And so I reached for Paul Matisse and Tony and Paul, who loves the bull ring. Paul talked about the nuances and the challenges and how the turns are, are so different and the way riders ride is so different from a full-size mile track or, you know, any full-size racetrack. And then Tony explained what is going on when you're a jock riding the bull ring. And, and I'd like to think that that went a long way to assuaging people's outrage over something that, you know, they're making a snap judgment about, you know, a, a racing condition that they we're looking at probably in a lot of cases for the first time. There, there's not nearly as much bullring racing as there used to be. And so I think there's some people that, you know, once they sort of understood that it was a different style of racing that they were watching, they became less, you know, less upset about, you know, some of the, the circumstances that was unfolding out there. And I personally, I ended up really enjoying the, the racing from Vonner. And I thought it was very approachable. And, and, you know, the fact that those horses were running every seven to 10 days, I mean, it, everybody, everybody complains, oh, horses don't run anymore. What do you mean? I mean, we, we were all watching Vonner for eight weeks and some of those horses ran six times. <laughs> every every time you'd look up, it was, you'd see a horse that had just run. So you want you want horses that are running on a regular basis, the way harness horses do and, and the way greyhounds uh, run. Well, 
there you go. You, you had that. So uh, you're trying to enhance people's understanding. And if something happens that, you know, that, that provokes outrage, uh, it's to me, I, I feel obligated to try to bring on the voices that can explain it. So if anything happens out in the industry, out in the game that, you know, I'm curious about, that's my approach. If I'm curious about it and I don't understand it and I want to know more, I can only assume that a large percentage of the audience is in the same frame of mind. Right. And, and you know, I think that we, you know, we both, and we'll, we'll talk about how you fell in love, but you fell in love with the game just like many of us, myself included, and I think we all agree, the guys and gals that love this game, that there's, I'm trying to think of the best word, but there is definitely some dysfunction, right? As, and there's the dysfunction that comes from lots of different areas, right? It comes from, uh, uh, there's dysfunction with, uh, you know, the differences between owners and, and, and horsemen and horsemen and horse players and horse players and racetrack operators and uh, horse uh, horse players and, 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 and stewards and all, of, it can go on for years, takeout and. ADWs versus horsemen, and there's a million of them. And and you've, over the years, have covered so many of those levels of dysfunction and tried to educate. And um, it's a little early in this episode to, 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 to pose this question to you, but what the hell, let's dive in. What are you, what, what are the top, the things on the top of your list of, of the dysfunctions that we have and, and, and which ones do you, do you have many solutions for? Obviously they're, they're huge problems with large solutions that obviously smart, powerful people can't come to, but what are some of the things that really stand out to you in, in this game that we, we just have to get right if we want it to continue to, to be the special game that we all love? Well, for starters, I, I don't, I don't necessarily, I might be the wrong guy to ask because I don't have a preconceived notion that it's characterized as as dysfunction. There, there's a reason that there are areas of conflict throughout the sport and throughout the industry. And... It, I, I know that there's a certain percentage of I don't want to, I don't even know if it's an audience because the people who don't think that I decry certain topics enough they they you know they probably aren't even listening so I, I don't you know I, I'm not necessarily obliged to address you know that that group but there's a reason that everything that people are frustrated with and, and would like to see addressed, there's a reason for every single one of them. And a lot of the game's best qualities and most endearing qualities are, are just part of its, its, its whole makeup. You, you have a, an industry here that is older than any other organized sport. Th this isn't like anything else. This isn't like any of the team sports. 
It's not like any of the individual uh, sports, like a like a tennis, golf, etc. It it's it's not football, baseball, hockey. The, uh, the people, oh, we need a commissioner. They, they've been talking about a commissioner for a hundred and fifty years. There's not going to be a commissioner. You can stop wasting your time about a commissioner. The industry is where it is because it's the oldest endeavor, sporting endeavor, in North America. And the way it it developed is maybe right now to its its, everlasting detriment, but you had the growth of the United States and Canada, and you had jockey clubs and, and racing associations grow in each jurisdiction that then became states, that then became part of state government coffers. And the 36 jurisdictions, nobody's going to be giving up their authority. And nobody's going to be giving up the revenue to some overseeing entity. And everything that's happened in the interior of the sport as it's grown is also the the root of what people consider problems. But I, I, I (laughs) I don't think you're going to come up with some blanket solution collectively. All everybody can do is try to make the game as good as it can be in their arena and in their jurisdiction and in their sphere of influence. Being a good steward of the game is the obligation of of anybody that participates. And that's the one, if there's one solution, it's to drive that message home. And I I certainly would say that the entity that could do the most to help things collectively are are certainly the track management organizations that can work to make the betting product as good as it can be, because that's the solution to so many other issues. But when it comes to working together, you've got to rely on each individual ownership group, each individual HBPA and and THA and and each, you know, each breeding organization, all of the alphabet soup organizations, as Satish Sanan famously called them. But the racetrack organizations that are are putting together betting menus, they're the ones who could do the most good for the game the quickest and and seem to be moving in the right direction on the takeout topic. And, you know, unless there is a, a better working agreement between all entities to lower takeout collectively, well, then at least we can continue to benefit from these individual wagering menu improvements like the low takeout pick five, not that, not that multi-race wagers at, at a low takeout is, is the best, you know, is it, that's one area that is certainly marketable, but 
multi-race wagers really don't need super low takeout. Uh, they, they, there's only one takeout in multi-race wagers. So if there is a place where, you know, where slightly higher takeout is, is you know, easier to digest, it's in the multi-race wagers. The fact that, that these pick fives have become the home of low takeout arrangement, all right, fine. If that's what, if that's what we're going to use as a toehold, to drive home this message, uh, Emerald Downs is going to start here uh, shortly. They're going to do a, a low takeout superfecta. If if this message is seeping slowly into racetrack management marketing decisions and it's working its way into individual, you know, intra race wagers, we're heading in the right direction. Uh, you know, Naira uh, Barry Schwartz when he was president. He was whittling down the takeout on whips, and he was getting it down to 14%. And then the Racing and Wagering Board, they ruined it. They, they ruined it. They, they, Barry was taking it down, 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 and next thing you know, it was back up to 17%. And you know, so you have some forces that work against good intentions in some cases. Uh, I think that I think that that relationship has actually improved in New York where you know the new gaming commission uh, is a little easier it seems to work with than the old racing and wagering board but if there's one area i mean if the question is what's the one area well it's it's making the betting product more attractive and priced better and that's been the problem for ages and you know there's there's so many other little things that I think you just have to rely on the mechanisms that are in place. You have to rely on them and trust in them to, you know, take care of, of their arena, but track management, if they can understand that the betting product has to be as good as possible in an, in what is an increasingly challenging marketplace, uh, that would be a, a, a real advancement. That would be tremendous progress. Uh, and I think the players, I mean, I think their biggest source of frustration is that the perception that so few, you know, so few members of the track management community understand that the betting product is the priority. Why do you think horse players, not all, right, a handful or at least enough to make it an uphill battle for the, the rest of us that are trying to pay attention? Why do you think it's like, you know, a, a, a bet like the Stronic Five or um, or even the the, the two-day uh, low takeout pick five that I think, uh, at Belmont last week, I think it handled like 350000 Why do you feel like we all as horse players love to complain, but the support for those wagers – and us voting with our dollar doesn't seem to be what it should be in, in order for us to to be able to have a case for hey we don't like your jackpot wagers. What do you what do you what do you think the psychology is behind that with the horse player and why we're not really voting with our dollar like we should? Well, I I, I would think that that three hundred and fifty thousand on the two day pick five uh, Friday Saturday, considering that it was only even really announced, I think on Wednesday, it, it, there was only about a 48 hour at best awareness. I, I thought, I, I actually thought 
the three hundred thousand change was was a, a solid number. Uh, oh no, I was I was very pleased. I mean, I was very. I mean, I thought you know I had a conversation with Marshall Graham that morning, and we thought maybe a hundred, hundred and fifty. Yeah. I was very pleased. But my, I guess my thought is is like so many other wagers that are so much less horse player friendly handle that daily. And maybe you're right. Maybe it's the, you know, the familiarity of like the rainbow six or whatever it might be. But um, I just feel like we, I feel like we dropped the ball on that a lot. You know, it's like, uh, you know, Canterbury's got their low takeout, um, extremely low takeout pick five. And I, 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 you know, there's obviously some obstacles with ADWs to, to get that wager in, but I just feel like we, you know, there's a lot of complaining and not a whole lot of action. Well, talk about the sensibility and it, and it isn't, don't reserve it or or focus it on players uh, because it's widespread. It's also it's also on the you know on the ownership side and and you know virtually every area. And I've tried to explain or at least address this many times. On any given race day, there's going to be a hundred entities that are going to race, and at the end of the day, there's going to be 10 winners and 90 losers. The percentage of success is low. There's a much larger percentage of participants in every part of the business and the sport that lose that aren't successful, that are, are frustrated, that are angry. There, there's no stopping that. It's not possible. And so the, the, you know, the people that, that are complaining and the people that are being negative, they're, they're not necessarily authentically upset about, you know, the, whatever, whatever they're, they're grousing about, they're taking out their frustration on ready targets. That's all. And that's never going to go away. You could have the most perfect day of racing and, you know, anybody that cashed one ticket or even the some people that didn't cash any ticket and they just enjoyed the day, they saw great performances. Okay, they're going to leave and they're happy. And and by God, what a great day of racing. And how about Gamine's performance? And isn't it great? Sakatoga's got another funny side. There's going to be a preponderance of people that got beat that lost photos, that got taken down, that mispunched a ticket, that made a, a stupid mistake in their handicapping and ticket structure, and they're going to take it out on everybody else. And, and, and that's human nature. That's not, that's just simply not ever going to go away. And, uh, you know, Sean Clancy, a few years ago, I, 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 Sean and I were sitting and I, I was, I was very, frustrated and annoyed, uh, not about anything that actually, you know, was, was happening on the racetrack, but by some of that, you know, some of that malcontent material that, that is out there every day. And Sean said, who, who says that, you know, what, you know, what those people are, are, are writing, 
on the internet. Who, who, who says that you have to take it to heart? Who says you have to even read it? Uh, you know, it, it's not any different than, than the guys on the fence, than the railbirds, you know, that are motherfuckering a jockey as they walk by and telling them how terrible they are. Would you take that guy's opinion seriously? So then why, why are we worried about, you know, people that are essentially doing the same kind of thing with the keyboard, you know, on the internet? And, and the reality is a lot of what is being, you know, offered up out there, you know, particularly on Twitter, it's, it's not representative of the general population of, of players and of participants in the industry. I, I hear from way more horsemen, way more owners and breeders and consigners and people involved in the game, probably than, than most, you know, most people doing anything media related. And the vast majority of them are are not disgruntled and are not you know not unhappy being in the game and and I'll tell you something else Jonathan it, it to me the show one of the one of the real essence uh, to me of the show is that I, I want people to be proud of being involved in the sport and and breeding horses and buying and selling them and betting on them and training them and that noise is just that it, it's it's a bunch of noise and it's not representative of the reality that is out there at the racetrack and and certainly the people that you know that are getting up at 4 a.m. and and you know working 17 18 hours a day uh <laughs> And and those that are handicapping seriously and and betting seriously, it they're not they're not worried about you know what what internet malcontents have to say. They're worried about the task in front of them, and that's getting their horse ready for the next start, uh, for preparing that yearling for the two year old sale. I, I I don't I just I don't buy into the whole you know, the whole sky is falling mentality. And I would invite others to, because it, it it's not productive. And to get back to what we just talked about, there's no immediate solution other than everybody being as good a steward of the game as they can individually. And that's all we can do. There's going to be thievery. There's going to be people that, that try to take advantage. There's, there's going to be, when there's money involved, there's going to be you know, people that are, are just no good. And that's true on Wall Street. It's true in real estate. It's true in any endeavor. So why would this be an exception? And I, I, I cannot I personally just don't live my life that way where I buy into negativity and, and take that as some sort of a cue and a gospel that everything else is terrible. I wouldn't, if, if I felt that way, Jonathan, I couldn't do this three hours a day 
Monday through Friday and then put in the Saturday and Sunday work that I do for the last 15 years. It's no way to live. And and it's not, you know, it's not healthy and it's not healthy for the game for people to have, you know, that feeling. And and so I, I don't, I, I don't know if I've got rose-colored glasses or I've got blinkers on, however you want to characterize it. But if you if you are taking care of what's, you know, in your arena uh, and, and doing right by, you know, the people you're involved with, uh, you can enjoy the game and the game will reward you. And that's just, you know, that to me is is a way to approach it. Yeah, no, and I agree. And I, I think that one of the things that I've always felt um, you know, your, your point of, you know, everyone should be there, there, you know, do their best by the game. And, and that's one way. And I think the other, there's a couple of other ways I think that people individually can, can make an impact in, in getting things going, keep, keep things going in the right direction, um, is to educate yourself about the other facets of the game. Understand how horsemen's groups are funding those purses. Understand the the expenses that uh, the the horsemen's groups and horsemen have in running their operations and understanding that. And I invite the horsemen to understand more about the better, a professional horse player, what a rebate looks like, how those rebates are earned, and and how a professional horse player can make money. I also think that it's important that we continue to communicate with a positive spin on things. One thing that I've there's a lot of people on Twitter that say smart things sometimes, but they say it like such assholes. No one's listening. And I, I can think, and I don't, I don't mind saying the person's name because I've told him this before. I, I, I love Garrett Skiba personally. I like him as a, as a person. I think he's one of the greatest live. If he's not, if he's not the greatest live money contest player ever, he's pretty damn close. But I used to tell him all the time, like, dude, like you're, what you're saying is smart. If you could just change the delivery, more people would listen, but I think a lot of the industry folk feel attacked and they just say, they just turn it off. And so I think that trying to find a way to be diplomatic in your complaints or your suggestions is also important. Um, just because, you know, the, the screaming and yelling behind your keyboard, and this is not talking about Garrett, this is just other people screaming and yelling behind your keyboard. You just end up being the crazy guy. Like, Oh, look at that. There's a crazy guy over there. He's complaining again. Um, you know, and I even had that conversation with, with somebody before. I was like, yo, like, dude, you, you act like you're trying to help me, but you've never said anything positive toward to me. Never. You're silent when there's success or silent when something cool happens or silent when, you know, whatever. But you only say anything when when I'm when you feel like you've you've you're about to score a point on me. Like, how how is that supposed to be helpful? So um I'm I'm with you on that. On the sky is falling. I, I try to steer away from that as much as possible. On on another note, when when did you fall in love with horse racing? At what point in your life? I, I've heard you talk about the Preakness experience, but I didn't know if that was if you had already been exposed or if that was where you really fell in love. When, when did you fall in love with horse racing? I always enjoyed it, and uh, and I always would watch you know the the major events and uh, the Triple Crown events. My grandfather took me to Aqueduct uh, when I was a kid. And Joe Namath, I, I tell this story all the time. Joe Namath was in the next box or a couple of boxes over. And my grandfather, you know, knew him through, I'm going to forget the name of the men's clothing store in Great Neck. Uh, but 
they, you know, they, they he knew he knew to be able to to talk to Joe Namath and got you know got me an autograph and I got to be introduced to Joe Namath. So I came back that day from Aqueduct and I thought it was pretty much the coolest place I'd ever you know I'd ever seen, and. I didn't get a chance to really go and enjoy the racing until I got out of college. Uh, but my, my friend, Phil, uh, that I went to Colgate with Phil ended up working at first Jersey securities in DC. And of course, Bob Brennan, first Jersey securities come grow with us, (laughs) uh, was due process stables. Uh, and this is a crazy story. Brennan, you know, Brennan would, would have all the, the young stockbrokers and, and old stockbrokers, they would all go to racing events, including up to Garden State Park, which, which Brennan had, had rebuilt. And so Phil and his roommate, a guy by the name of Skip Moser, Phil and Skip became really big racing fans. And they started having these Preakness parties. Uh, they lived in Arlington, Virginia. And I, meantime, had gone from Manhattan to Cincinnati with Cannon Mills out of college and then to Kansas City. Uh, I'd gone to work, I'd gone to work for Proctor and Cincy and ended up then in Kansas City and Charlotte. So I would, I would come to Virginia, to D.C. for Preakness because Phil and, and Skip had this elaborate party, which would start with uh, breakfast at their at their condo in Arlington, and then we would bus up to Baltimore. So every year started going to Preakness, and then Phil and I started. Once I moved back to the Northeast, after I, I ended up moving from Kansas City to Charlotte, and then Charlotte back to New York, New Jersey, Connecticut. And once I got back to the Northeast, Phil and I would not only go to, obviously I'd go to the Preakness party, but then Phil and I would follow it up by going to Belmont. And then we started going to Saratoga. This is in the 80s. And then by the end of the 80s, by 1991, I moved to Montreal. And now I'm, you know, three hours from Saratoga. So Phil and I spent every weekend at Saratoga, all, you know, first all five weeks and then all six weeks. And so my interest in the game and my my devotion to it and my you know focus on it, it just kept with proximity to you know being able to attend the races you know more and more often. It, it just kept growing from there. I I also lived in Brielle, New Jersey, uh, you know, twenty minutes from Monmouth. And interestingly, Monmouth was the first racetrack that I was able to attend like on a daily basis. I could run up, you know three o'clock, you run over to Monmouth and catch, you know, the, the last five, six races. And I I just, you know, from that point became more and more interested in in not just the horseplay side, uh, because I, you know, I started to really play seriously by the late eighties and the other half of the game, the other elements that started to, you know, catch my, my interest were, you know, the, the history of the game, uh, and pedigree and you know that portion so it 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 all you know kind of was snowballing all through the 90s and 
then when I had to leave Montreal, I was there 10 years. I had a chance to, you know, essentially I could live almost anywhere. I, you know, working in the food business, uh, food brokerage, I created uh, food products for the club stores, for Price Club and Costco. And I could really do it anywhere. And I thought, you know what? I could live in Saratoga. So in 99, when I had the chance to you know, move back to the U.S., I came to the Saratoga area, ended up in Greenwich, you know, which is about 13 miles east of Saratoga. And that's it. I've been here 21 years. And, and that decision sort of set in motion a number of things that, you know, resulted in, in what's, you know, transpired for me. Uh, and, you know, I, with every passing opportunity, I, I just got more and more immersed in, in the game and, and, in its, and in the game's culture. You know, working on the racetrack with the barbecue at Saratoga, you know, having that opportunity to work six weeks uh, a summer on the racetrack, that, you know, that, that qualifies you as a, as a racetracker. And, and that becomes, you know, so infectious and it just kept going. I, I you know, what transpired from, from my moving down here uh, is, it's crazy, actually. It, it, it's, <laughs> it's something of a, of, a, of a fairy tale, you know, serendipity. I, 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 couldn't, I couldn't have had it planned to, to happen the way it did. I mean, with, you know, my getting involved with, with the Carolina barbecue guys and then, you know, working at Saratoga and at the Breeders' Cups with them. Uh, and then, you know, starting to write again. I had been a sports writer and broadcaster in college. I always wanted to do it uh, professionally. And, you know, I sort of missed my opportunity out of, out of college to do it. And the next thing I know, uh, you know, I'm writing some stringer pieces for Blood Horse. Uh, you know, the proximity to the racing helped and, and the people I started to meet. And then I got invited to, you know, handicap on the show. And, and I, I, you can't, you couldn't make it up, Jonathan, honestly. Right. I tell you what, not, it's not too many people say I moved down to Saratoga. It's, I mean, I think for, for 90% of the people <laughs> in the world, it's up to Saratoga. <laughs> but, um, so I want to, I do want to talk to you about the barbecue, but I, before I get there, I, I do want to ask, so what was your first, do you, do you remember that big, that first big score? Like the one that was like, all right, I, now not only do I love this, I can make money at it. This is my new favorite thing, and I'm hooked for life. Did you have one of those scores, or you mean, you know, mine was like a three hundred dollar try at Lone Star. I thought it was the greatest thing in the history of the world. <laughs> yeah, there is, uh, there is, and and um, it, it's it's a really fun. It's really well, it's fun, and it's it's also it's bittersweet too. Uh, it, it involves. Alabama Day, uh, 1990, and Gopher Wand uh, had become a, a personal favorite. So there was no way I was going to miss uh, seeing her in the Alabama, even though she was going to be, you know, one to nine. And a girl I was dating at the time, uh, Karen Papp, and she loved it up here. She had gone to Cortland. So she knew Saratoga pretty well and, and loved to come up and loved going to the track. So we come, she 
she loved the shoe depot, which <laughs> for, for Saratogans of a certain, you know, age, you know, remember the, the, the shoe depot, the wall of savings. There was all the, you know, all the, all the, it was, the shoe depot was women's heads would explode. <laughs> You'd take them in there. And so, so Karen, you know, we were going to, I promised her we'll go to shoe depot and we'll, you know, we'll have a, we'll have a great time. So <laughs> we, uh, we get to the track and I bet a double, which I, I rarely, even even now, I rarely play doubles. I, I should play them more, actually. And I hit I hit the opening double. So I I I want to say I cash for like one hundred and twenty dollars. So I'm up, you know, we're two races in. I'm up one hundred and twenty. And so I said to her, "Let's go. Let's walk downtown, or drive. You know, I was parked in the neighborhood." Let's run downtown. We'll get you some shoes and then we'll come back for, we'll come back for, uh, go for one. Okay. So we're walking out and as we're walking through the carousel, she runs into a girlfriend from school. So she starts to talk to the girlfriend and now it's about, I don't know, six, seven minutes to post for the third. She's talking and I said, all right, if you're going to talk, let me, I'm going to bet this race. So I'm looking at the race and back then the horses from Rockingham, there was, there was, you talk about angles. There was, there were certain summers when there was seasons of the Rockingham shipper, the Rockingham shippers would come in from New England, from New Hampshire, and they, they'd run well and they'd, generally be good prices because, you know, they were the, you know, the New England trainers that, that weren't as familiar as, as the New York trainers. So I'd latch on, I see this horse, uh, keynote speaker, I think it was, was or was it Ballinar? But key, the, the, the horses that are germane are, are a horse by the name of keynote speaker and a horse uh, named Ballinar. And one of them was Mikey Arrow who I have since become very friendly with. And that was the Rockingham shipper. So I keyed off of the Rockingham shipper who was like 17 to one. It was a nine horse field and the horse was, the horse was the, the seven. And I ended up settling on the, the one, the three, the five and the nine. And so I, I place a $2 exacto wheel seven with the one, three, five, nine, all the odd horses, as it turned out. And watching the race unfold, seven's out there winging along and back then you only had the, the individual numbers on the screen. So they're around the turn and it's like seven, one, five, three. And I'm like, oh my God, I said, this horse is going to win. And any of those horses can clunk up with him. And, and I've got this. And so there's a couple of people with me and, and the guy, this older guy with me is like, who you got? I said, I, I, the seven. I said, I got the seven with, with four horses. 
So now we're watching, and all of a sudden, as they come around the turn, I see that there's something moving from the back. And now they're now we're in the stretch, and and the seven is now confronted by some horse that's rallying, and and I I can't tell at first, and then I realize it's the nine. So at the time, I didn't really know, you know, it was, all right, I I don't care, whatever, seven nine nine seven. So they hit the wire, and it's close, and I, I and the nine ends up winning, so it's nine seven. And I look up at the board, the nine's the longest shot on the board, it's 27 to one. And, and the other, the Balinar and keynote speaker. And I got a, I got a 27 to one over a 17 to one. And the guy with me and no offense, I hope nobody takes offense to it, but he says to me, he's looking, he says, you got it. You got it. And I said, I said, I got the seven with the one, three, five, nine. He goes, you got it. You got it. The boys got it. And I, I, I'll just never forget hearing him. That I could, I could see him and hear him. And, and I just, so now I'm like, this is unbelievable. I go to the window. It comes up. It's $721 for the exact. <laughs> and I'm like, this is nuts. And I, I give the, I give the teller. It was on what's called the main line. Uh, for those that know, you know, mutual talk. It was on the main line, and they put the ticket in, and the machine makes that sound. You know, the years ago, and now nothing comes up. The guy says, "Oh, he says this is a this is an IRS ticket." I said, "What's that mean?" He says, "You got to go to the IRS window. They're going to take taxes out of this." I said, "Okay, all right, uh, I guess." So I had my first IRS ticket. So you go and you stand on the little footprints and you look up and they take the picture and you, you don't give a shit. What, what you couldn't care less. I, end up, I still have the, I still have the receipt at 500 and I think $534 or something. So uh, that was my, that was my, you know, rock my world moment. And the two, the two jocks in there were, were uh, choppy Chavez and Migliori. And, and I think it was, I'm pretty sure it was Mig that won the race. And so years later, when I was working on the track, Rich interview got interviewed by Mary Ryan. Mary would do the, you know, the, the show in the carousel. And I, I went up to Rich and I, and I entered the first time I introduced myself to him. So this has got to be, you know, 2001, 2002. Um, I told him the story and, and he, he said right away, he said, I know exactly. I, I remember the race like it was yesterday and he had to run. He had to go do something. He had, he had to get to the jocks room. And, but that was my first introduction. And, and, uh, and rich, rich and Gary Stevens. It's funny. You mentioned Megan Stevens. Those are my two favorite jocks forever. And so one of my real pleasures with the show is to have the conversations I get to have when, when Gary and, and Rich are on and, and Gary has given the show some of the greatest moments ever. Uh, but when it comes to a single race that I identify as, you know, the greatest game in the world and, you know, the Andy Byer king of the world, you know, the, the, those moments, it's that race. And, and then, you know, Mikey, I think Mikey Arrow heard me talking about the race once on the radio. 
and you know he he's down in Philly, and so with Tony Black and everything, so I become very friendly with Mikey too. Uh, and he's one of the greatest characters in racing history, Mike Arrow. Uh, but that's my that's my moment that uh, the race, and then of course you know we go downtown. I bought her you know three hundred dollars worth of shoes, and uh, and then we went back to watch Go for One win the way she won uh, the Alabama. That was a that was a very memorable weekend uh, because there, we stayed at the Holiday Inn. We stayed at the Holiday Inn. And there's a very funny story about about that too. There, there was like a moment out of vacation where we we snuck out of the window into the quad at the Holiday Inn and shimmied down a, a post and went swimming after hours, like at you know one a.m. Um, and then and then we couldn't. The, the doors were all locked to get back into the Holiday Inn, and, and so now we're uh, now we're sort of in the in the middle of that quad, and the doors are locked, and uh, we're waiting for somebody to you know to come in so they could pop the door ajar so we could get back to our room. And that that was that was a great weekend, boy. That was well, something. There's, there's nothing better than some of the stuff you buy right after a big score, right? You just feel like you're oh, on yeah. top of the world. It's found money. Um, I remember I remember when I the first day that I had met Pete. Um, in person at the Breeders' Cup back in 2014, right after I had hit that kind of that Bobby Bobby's kitten pop, oh, yeah. I had told Pete, I was like, we're, "We're me and my boys, we're taking a plane, we're going to Vegas tonight, we're going to Vegas tonight." And then you know, six hours later, the adrenaline calmed down. We we were in bed and not in Vegas, but <laughs> but uh, yeah, it's 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 uh that happens from time to time. Um, what? Tell me the story about the barbecue. I mean, I've always heard you mention it, but what your involvement and, and where was it at? It was over by like kind of by the, the red jacket hall of fame situation. Is that where it was at Saratoga? A little, a little further down, right, right, uh, right now they've got uh, on that pad site behind the carousel, they, they've got the, uh, uh, like a margarita bar or whatever the hell it is. The, but the barbecue was all over the grounds. We, we had, we had, the main, you know, that was the main stand, which was basically the cafe. And then we had the sausage stand, which was, which was on, uh, you know, the arcade, uh, path. And, uh, uh, we had like five other, six other, uh, carts around the racetrack and uh, Carolina barbecue had, had been, uh, at Gulfstream for several years. And that's how they ended up uh, actually coming to Saratoga was with ARA. Uh, Aramark uh, was the food service operation at Gulfstream at the time. And they were operating at Saratoga. And in 1994, when there was the baseball strike, uh, they took Boog Powell. Boog had the barbecue down at Camden Yards and they brought ARA brought Boog up to Saratoga. And then the next summer, 95, Boog was back at Camden Yards. So the people at Aramark asked Barry uh, Fry and, and Bill Mayberry, the Carolina barbecue guys, do you want to take an installation up at, and take the you know the food up to Saratoga? And so they said, sure. So I I started seeing them at Breeders' Cups and at Derby, but then it was really when I moved in '99 to Saratoga, I got to really know them. And I was, you know, I'd go have a sandwich, you know, every couple of days. And when I got to know them, 
you know, they found out that I was a food broker and they said, can you help us merchandise the, the barbecue sandwich, you know, in, in food service, you know, in, in installations, things like convenience stores. So I said, sure. So starting in 99, uh, I went with them to the Breeders' Cup at, at Gulfstream to sort of see how the operation worked. Then I was with them, you know, the next, the next year and, and started, you know, working and, and trying to find places to take a prepackaged version of the barbecue. And we got it. Yeah, we, we did okay. We, we got a test at uh, pilot truck stops and you know, got some other convenience store business. And then in 2001, you know, I'm living, I'm living down here in 2001, uh, Bill had had a, a heart attack. And so Barry said to me, do you want to run the, the cafe at Saratoga this summer? I said, yeah, I would. Because, you know, as somebody who had worked in the food business as long as I had, I, I'd always thought about opening a restaurant. Uh, and, and it's very funny too, because barbecue was, was one concept that I had drawn up plans for when I was living in Kansas City. And essentially, I called on every great barbecue restaurant in Kansas City. I mean, literally a hundred, there's 110 barbecue joints in and around Kansas City. And I called on every one for Procter & Gamble. So the barbecue was always of an interest to me. And I, I thought about opening a place, getting back to Cincinnati, which I really, I love Cincinnati. And I, I would have loved to have gotten back there at some point. And so I, I had a concept uh, to bring to Cincinnati, which was Kansas City style barbecue. Under the brand, the, the name was Higby's, was going to be the, the the brand name, and getting it tied on with with the Carolina guys was particularly fun because it it allowed me to sort of live out my idea about being involved in food service on a full time basis, and frankly, it it kind of cured me of that because the the work is so hard and so nonstop that. It, I mean, it might get in your blood and, and be, you know, be infectious and the people that, that do it and love it, you know, they, it's a lifestyle, much like the racetrack is, but it, it's, it's a hard, hard life choice. Uh, but it, it was fun for those six weeks every summer. And I really took a lot of pride in, in what I did in, with that barbecue stand because we expanded items. I, I, you know, I started using our, our different meat in different ways. I created an Italian beef sandwich with our beef. Uh, we got into, created a pot roast sandwich. We did Montreal smoked meat, uh, for several years. You know, we really had a lot of fun and, and built a really special scene around the barbecue. I had a captain's table off to the side where the trainers would sit and, it it really was instrumental in in what ended up you know becoming you know my my path with the radio because uh, that's how I got friendly with Gary Siaka and then Gary started bringing Bobby Frankel uh, Frankel 
like to hang out there more than anywhere else on the racetrack because nobody would bother him. <laughs> Zito would come by, uh, and then you know Zito would would bring Mrs. Weber, and, and I got friendly with with Charlotte that way. And I, you know, the owners and and you know people from inside the game would come and, and either sit on the back porch. You know, we we built up the whole patio, and it, it became a real happening on the racetrack. And it was the most unique. It was really the most unique dining anywhere on the track and i i can't even describe i mean what a what a great situation it it was and and how much fun everybody had around the barbecue uh and people miss it terribly i mean i miss it terribly but uh, it it was key i mean it it was that experience that actually led you know that that got me writing again and and going to the triple crown events with the barbecue you know put me you know, put me at churchill and and pimlico and uh, belmont and all the breeders cups and you know that's that's when i started uh, writing about it and and handicapping and started derby trail it it it's all intertwined and uh, it, from that standpoint again it, it's nothing i could have jonathan i you know, listen. You can identify what's what what what's gone on for you is is not dissimilar. Yeah. <laughs> uh, if it wasn't for Texas outlawing ADWs, I would have never played in contests. I only played in contests because it was easier than driving to San Antonio for action, and that is what essentially led me to here. And another, uh, really, another weird thing. I I don't know a lot of people know this, but. Ron Rippey's passing is the only reason I had two entries in my first NHC because I got third in a contest that he won and I was going to just go with one entry. And then when he passed, I got the second one. So, um, you know, not that that's a celebration by any means. I'm just saying that if it wasn't for that unfortunate event, I wouldn't have ever had two, which, you know, obviously that, that getting two in that first NHC I was at had a lot to do with kind of, you know, people, I guess, recognizing my name. So hmm. what, and I've never, I don't, you're going to be able to answer this very easily, I think, and quickly. What is the difference between, I'm guessing the the four big uh, genres of barbecue are Carolina, Memphis, Kansas City, and Texas. What what are the differences between those four? Well, mostly, mostly sauce, but uh, each, you know, each individual region would also have, you know, certain certain smoking tendencies and, and, you know, certain preferences, um, you know, Texas, you know, Texas is also a, a typically a, a spicier style. Uh, it, it, you go to Carolina, Carolina has got the mustard culture, the mustard sauce. Uh, you go to South Carolina around Columbia and, that's a the sauce is yellow. It's essentially vinegar and mustard. Uh, is is you know South Carolina barbecue sauce. You go a little further north, and it's a thin red sauce. It's very vinegary. Uh, Kansas City, you're looking at a at a more of an uh, apple vinegar and a, a slightly sweeter, uh, tangier sauce. I mean, everybody's got their own style. And, and you know, Memphis Memphis isn't so at least from my from my knowledge. Memphis is is more of a ribs town because of Corky's than than I think of it as a barbecue town. I mean, Kansas City 
to me, Kansas City and and Texas and Carolina, those are the three, you know, very distinct regions. And, you know, then there's, you know, there's individual elements when it comes to pulled and, and chopped and sliced. I mean, there's, there's so many different iterations of, of barbecue. Uh, and, and really every, you know, every meat sandwich that you, you think of is only a, a slight departure. Uh, you, you go to Philadelphia, you talk about a cheesesteak and you go to you go to Chicago for Italian beef. These are all very, you know, they're all intertwined. Uh, Philadelphia, the pork, the pork sandwich, uh, the Italian pork with the, with the, you know, the peppery broccoli rob and the, the sharp provolone uh, and the, you know, the thinly sliced pork. These, these are all, you know, they're all close. Uh, the, the, the whole sandwich culture. In fact, I, just a couple of weeks ago, somebody posted a, a very cool graphic uh, of like 36 different sandwiches and and people were picking and choosing and we had a really fun it really made me laugh and I I had a whole got a whole discussion going and uh, you know the roast beef sandwiches from uh, the North Shore North Shore of uh, of Boston uh, and and the culture up there for the thin sliced roast beef sandwiches I mean everybody every region of the country has got these I mean then barbecue you know, barbecue is is just one facet, uh, but I, I I can make do with any of them. Love them all. You have uh, you have a you know a lot of different guests on. We had Nick Tamro last week, so Nick told us the story how he ended up getting to know you and how he got on the show. It's actually how Nick and I became friends, just because he went to high school with my uh, one of my like my college best friend, Robert, and, and we heard him on Bic and we would be like, Hey, you gotta, I told my friend, you gotta reach out to him. You gotta reach out to him. How, how did you, there's a couple in particular I was interested about and just your relationship in general, because I think it's very funny and interesting for people that don't know you personally and don't know him personally. Hmm. How did you meet Andy and become friendly with Andy and explain to everyone why he's such an asshole on your show? (laughs) Well, it, 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 if, if, if he's perceived that way, it's only because he and I talk three times a day. It, 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 I first became aware of Andy in the late 80s. And, you know, he was, he was doing the Ciro seminars and, you know, would, would have, you know, certain, you know, certain opportunities. Uh, you'd see him involved with, with, Naira telecast. I, I never remember the dates that, you know, that he was, that he was on, but, you know, I certainly knew uh, that, you know, he and, and, uh, uh, who else, uh, Rick Lang and, uh, Preachy and, uh, uh, Dave Litvin at times, um, uh, who else am I, who am I forgetting? Um, uh, moved out to Vegas. Uh, oh gosh, I'm going to, uh, uh, Anyway, the, the whole the, there were all the the personalities that were doing the the handicapping seminars, and Andy was was one of them. And I I would say hello to him often at Ciro's. You know, come back from come from the track. Andy would be sitting typically at a table uh, against that wall right when you you first walk in on the Lincoln side, and and I'd always say hi. And then at some point, at some point, 
we I I got I spent the we were at the bar I think inside late night once at Ciro's, and we started to really you know talk a little bit more, and then I sent him a note online, and I sort of presumed that he knew who I was, uh, that he he under, remembered who I was. And, and, and to this day, when I say that, you know, I've known him since the late 80s, he he will refute that. <laughs> but but I, he, he will say that's not true. I, I, you, you, you don't know me since the late 80s. But I do. I, I have. And uh, so at any point, by the time I moved down, you know, now I you know, had the opportunity to you know, know him that much better and. And you know, would see him in, in town at night or uh, at at the track. But the relationship we have now really started when I got involved with the show, and he was—I I cannot tell you—I mean, how invaluable Andy was and, and instrumental in getting the show acknowledged by important people. Uh, particularly on the handicapping side, uh, Steve Christ and Andy Beyer, most notably. Uh, and then from that point, you know, when, when then Andy said, if you ever need, you know, if you ever need me. And so he started coming on even, even before he went, came back to Naira and Andy was on regularly. And, and then it just became that much better, you know, as, as part of, you know, as part of the association with uh with Naira but he he's talking to me on the air like he talks to me when we're off the air and so that that familiarity and his willingness to browbeat me is is very funny he is he is the funniest person i know and is a you know everybody has you know certain friends that just make them laugh all the time, and and Andy it, will do that for me. He, I I laugh nonstop listening to him, and he's he's probably the the smartest single individual that that I know. And uh, you know, he 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 never is being malicious with anybody and it, it's one of the it's one of the internet's greatest failings that there there's this percentage of people out there in, in you know in the racing universe that have no idea how much they would love Andy if they spent if they spent any time with him at all if they got to know him at all and if they understood that a lot of the the bravado and and the the shtick uh not that it isn't him because it is but it 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 is never mean-spirited it, it ever ever he's as he's as kind and generous as anybody anyone knows uh and i i i'm sure that everybody that is close to him would, you know, would back that up. And he, in fact, he's kind and generous to a fault, uh, that people have taken advantage of. Uh, but, uh, it, it doesn't change his, his outlook or his approach. He, 
don't ever nobody should nobody should take offense ever to the way in which Andy is talking to me, talking to you, talking to Amos, uh, talking to Maggie. The, 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 the one of the one of the silliest things is is how you know people talk about. Oh, did you hear how he talked to Maggie? Stop or to or or to Anthony. It it it, it it's not it it's not what you think at all ever. Uh, no, he'll text you. He'll he'll say something that like you weren't you didn't even notice, and he'll be like, "Hey, you know I didn't mean I was just whatever." And then like him and Tom, the, he would text Tom, "Hey, I'm gonna take a shot at you here." You know, what I mean, like they, it's it's a lot of it is just him being you know, and that's what you know the racetrack is. It's a it's a it's you know the paramutual pools are one big disagreement. So. I think Andy realized that's what the game's all about, but I, I know, but I remember before I got to meet Andy and know Andy personally and, and, and the, the, some of the things that you're talking about, how, you know, how he really is. It's like, I used to listen to the show and I'd be like, dude, if I was Steve, I would hang up on this dude. Right now. <laughs> no, it, it, I've learned more. Andy's taught me uh, as much as any, as any public handicapping pundit. Uh, Andy was the first person that pointed out to me the power of a, of the cutback of the turnback. I, I, that's why, it's why seven eighths became my favorite distance because Andy taught me that horses that aren't meant to go a route of ground or two turn miles or whatever, that when they turn back to what they're meant for in terms of their aptitudes, that, it's the most potent angle in the game, and he and, and he's right. It, it there's more scores made on turnbacks. Yeah, that's why everybody was was jumping over, falling over themselves on Saturday for shoplifted. You know, because everybody was waiting for him to get back to seven eighths or to you know the one turn. Uh, you know, personally, today on the show, uh, Joe Bianca, myself, and Tom Amos all independent of each other talked about how Gamine was so impressive and so successful Saturday because she was turning back to the one turn configuration and, and all three of us independent of each other wondered how effective she'll necessarily be if she's going to go to the test next and then stretching back out for the mile and the eighth and the Oaks, if that's going to work for her. And it may provide for a bet against opportunity by the time we get to the Oaks. It's going to be one of the best stories going forward toward September. You know, it's funny. We actually had that conversation, Pete and I, today on our show. Um, did you have Baffert today? Not today. No, I, we ran out of time. Uh, I spent a lot of time with Nick Luck talk, uh, recapping Royal uh, Ascot. And uh, we'll get to Baffert tomorrow and Neil Drysdale as well. Uh, who had a huge weekend with uh, Alexandra and and uh, uh, Toinette. Uh, still a lot to do tomorrow. Plus Andy Serling. There you go. There you go. Um, so we talked. I, I thought maybe that Gamin would coaching club was coaching club too quick. When is coaching club? I got to look at the schedule. I, I didn't print out the second schedule. or third week, but I, I said test two, and then I thought to myself, maybe Baffert won't want to do the cut back again and then stretch out. For the you know, so I thought maybe he would run her there, and I know a lot of people are talking about running her against the boys, which I don't necessarily feel like necessarily needs to happen. Buyer Buyer talked about that today. Buyer said uh, he hopes that she goes against the the boys, and I I, I cringed and I told him I said, uh, well, Andy Buyer today, 
Andy Serling tomorrow to be the counterpoint uh, to running against the boys. And Andy doesn't think there's any, uh, there's, you know, why, why, why is that uh, a priority? I mean, so this was only her third race. Uh, you know, let her, let her do, let her do what, you know, what assignments are, are laid out for, but I, their, their initial, the camp's initial reaction was, was to go to the test. And, and then the, I, I, I guess, I, I guess the, it was Amos today that uh, uh, talked about watching her at Oaklawn and sensing that she is not, uh, unless she matures between now and, and September, that she just may be, you know, too much of a, of a open mouth, you know, go, go, go type. Uh, he doesn't know if she'll rate, uh, comfortably going two turns. He he thought that she won that race at Oakland uh, just on raw talent. She just gutted it out to the wire, but you know, against against a number of serious two-turn three-year-old fillies. Yeah. So it's it's gonna be a fun it's gonna be a fun storyline. Might might be might be a great bet against. Absolutely. She'll be bet off the board. Tony Black, how did that relationship because it feels I mean maybe I'm wrong, but my guess is is that Tony Black was not someone that you found for the show, but someone that you had a relationship with that you brought on the show? No, he was already part of the show. With uh, he and he and Joe Gracie, JJ Gracie, you know who who spent his career in New Jersey and and Philadelphia. Uh, Tony won boatloads of races for JJ, and so uh, by the time I even got there, Tony was was part of the show, and uh, has you know has remained a, a constant that is just adored. I mean, he is as pure and unadulterated and unfiltered and it just everything you could possibly want. Uh, he, he's remarkable. He's, he has seen it all. He is not afraid to, to tell you what he's seen. And, uh, there, there have been some unforgettable moments because of, of who Tony Black is. He's, he's invaluable. No, with, with, without a doubt, he's he's. Uh, I, I just like listening to him talk. He, he tells uh, he tells great stories too. And, and he, he, um, he, I got I, there's one there's one story that I, I that's probably I don't know if it's in the archive, but I, the, the the quintessential Tony Black moment. Tony tells a story about, and I don't even know how I asked him to prompt this, but he tells a story about getting a horse, getting a, a, a ride on a horse. I think I, I may have asked him about getting a horse ready for a spot, you know, and, and how, how different things are. And this is one of the internet, you know, internet horseydom's great inequities is how the, the internet wishes for the old days of racing, but, that if they hear the stories from the old days of racing, they're horrified. So, which is it? Do you, do you want do you want the old days, or 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 do you not? Because Tony tells the story about uh, some trainer and some outfit, and they're getting the horse ready. They want to bet the horse, you know, when it's going to be ready to win. And so, you know, the horse runs a few times, and you know, they're they're just getting the horse some experience. 
they get ready and and the the guys that are you know behind the horse and and the trainer and and they tell Tony, "All right, Tony, she's ready. This is it. She she's ready to run. She's going to win today." You know, we're going to, we're going to bet with both fists. Make sure you don't get yourself in a jackpot. So Tony's got out there and he's set and they're going around the turn. And Tony says, I'm in a jackpot. <laughs> he says, I got nowhere to go. So <laughs> I, I finally, I got no choice. I got to bust through between the rail and, and the horse on the rail. And I just get up. And I win because I know these guys, you know, these guys bet their money. They, 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 you know, they wanted her to win today. And I forget the jock that he, that he said he, he had to get through, but he said he, he gallops up next to him and says, Tony, what the hell was that? And he said, listen, he said, these guys, they, they bet out on this horse. I had to get through. I had to get up there. He says, well, Jesus, he says, you really, you bothered me. He said, Tony says, how much did I bother you? Did I bother you 500 worth? He said, yeah, that's about how much you bothered me. <laughs> so Tony, Tony tells this story. I'm like, well, everybody, that's Tony's last appearance on the show. Say goodbye to Tony Black. It's, it's unbelievable. But you know what? I, I, that... that you 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 want to know what makes the game rough and tumble? There you go. I mean, it, it's it, it. He told that story, and and you know what? If if a certain percentage are outraged, okay, I I guess I don't know, but it, it's it's this is the life we've chosen, uh, as uh, <laughs> as Hyman Roth would say. Absolutely. I mean, look, it's, it's, uh, it's, it's part of it, you know, and, and look, I mean, I, I would imagine that in the history of all of sports, there's back in the day when there wasn't the transparency and the technology and the, you know, I think that this country as a whole is just like morally has become more responsible. Right. So it's like the fact that things like that took place 20, 30, 15, whatever years, years ago, whatever, get over it. You know, I mean, it is what it is. Right. Well, we're, we're, <laughs> it's an interesting. It's an interesting uh, the, the time, uh, his, his, you know, historically that uh, to say that this country's uh, advanced morally. Uh, well, if you're yeah, if, if you're not in white, some areas. yeah, exactly. I suppose. In some uh, areas. Yeah, some areas. you can. Yeah. <laughs> not all. Not all areas. Yeah. Derby trail, the stable, or the message board? Which one came first? Oh, the board. Uh, the 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 website. Uh, by far the the website was actually one of those uh, silly yahoo uh, groups remember yahoo groups that's maybe you don't <laughs> no 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 I, I i got caught on mute no i got caught on mute no yeah no i i do know what you're talking about sure. it, it, i started it as a yahoo group and and frankly one of the reasons i'm enjoying the whole thing with barkley tag and sakatoga uh, is because i started the Yahoo group in, in 2002, but it was really in 2003 that, that things started to sort of gel, uh, in, in terms of my, my interests in having any kind of a, you know, of a, of a media involvement because I latched on to funny side when he was two. And then 
in fact, even today, it's funny, with Barkley, I discussed that trip that they took to Florida for the Holy Bull, which was his three-year-old debut. It was his first time out of New York, first time open company, first graded stake, and it was a disaster. He got hit by the gate. The The gate you know, sent him sideways and, and bruised his, his, his ribs, and he still finished fifth despite all these issues. And I, I talked to Barkley about that today, but I had latched on and in one of the first stories of any import that I wrote on Derby Trail, uh, on the Yahoo side, I wrote a story called A Derby Contender on the Side. And side because of the dam, uh, Bell's good side. And I talked all about the pedigree. I talked about, you know, all these things that people were considering a negative <clears throat> were actually positives. And that included Barkley Tag. It included distorted humor, first crop, giving a lot of speed to the horse with the female family, providing a lot of stamina. You know, three of his, he had, he had, uh, he had what, two Triple Crown winners and he had Little Current uh, were three of his four uh, grandsires. And so he had all of this classic success on the female uh, side of the pedigree and he had distorted humor's one turn speed on the top. And, you know, I've always, I, my understanding of pedigree to that point was you breed for, for speed on the sire side and stamina on the damn side. So I liked funny side right away. And I was always a Barkley tag fan from, you know, the old days of, of tag off the van tag would come up from Maryland and he was always deadly. I, I knew he was an accomplished horseman. So I became a funny side fan in March and he was my derby horse. And as a result, by the time we got to we got to Derby, you know, and I was with the barbecue, so I was in I was in Louisville. I got to watch him train. He was he you know, he came he came in late, but you could still see he was doing great. And I didn't think his race uh, in the wood against Empire Maker was was negative at all. And so I you know, I, I was all over him for the Derby and and that uh, that won over a lot of a lot of followers and even more so coming out of the derby i latched on to midway road as the price key in the preakness because will farish when i saw that neil howard was bringing midway road to the preakness i started to look up the last time you know because farish you really don't see that many farish horses in triple crown races so I start looking up. I start going back through charts, and I end up all the way back to 1972 when BBB won the Preakness, trained by Del Carroll, Del Senior, Red Carroll, and the first horseman that I really got close to was Del Carroll the second, and uh, Del had a uh, client, Pont Street Stables that I got very friendly with the partners and uh, Stan Ettinger and, and Dr. John Cheros and everybody, Richie uh, Ottinger and, uh, the, the, all, you know, just so many nice people at, at Pond Street. And Dell, I'd go to Dell with all kinds of questions. So I called Dell up and said, I said, Dell, would Neil Howard and Mr. Farish, would they be running in the Preakness, you know, just to be in the race? 
And Dell said, no way, no way. He said, when we ran BBB, he said, dad called Mr. Farish and said, he's doing great. It's going to come up wet. And I think we can win. He says, well, he says, if you think he's going to run well, he says, don't run him if, you know, if he's not going to, if he's not going to make a showing, don't run him. He said, no, he's doing good. He said, all right. Cause they, they came back on a week's rest. And so that gave me the confidence to key Midway Road, because I knew Funny Side was not losing the, the Preakness, especially after that nonsense uh, with the Miami Herald, you know, accusing Jose Santos of using a buzzer. One of the most embarrassing episodes in, in sports journalism history. Uh, so sure enough, Funny Side romps, and Midway Road is second at 20 to 1. And made Barry... Barry Fry and I made more money in the Preakness than we did even in the Derby. And we had the triple in the Derby, but we crushed the Preakness because of Midway Road. So anyway, I, I was giving away, I was giving away money on, on the Derby trail site. And, uh, we just kept, you know, I kept gaining followers. And, uh, when, when things happened with Barbaro, when, when Barbaro went wrong in the Preakness, Two years later, uh, I had a, a, a full-fledged website ready to launch, and all of us were all friendly at the ESPN message board. And when that happened with Barbaro, the message board at ESPN got inundated with all kinds of trolls, and they ruined it. Uh, and so I threw the switch on DerbyTrail.com, and then from there, <laughs> you know, things things blossomed from there. Next thing I know. A couple of years later, everybody said, let's, let's claim a horse. So I said, uh, all right, all right. Uh, I conceived of the, the club concept, you know, send $500. And I asked uh, Chuck Simon, I said, Chuck, I said, we'll raise 25,000. We'll get a horse. And, you know, will you train him on a deal? And uh, Chuck said, sure. So next thing we know, we have like 40 people, 35 people chip in. And they become partners. We bought Someone Loves You. And uh, that started the stable. Uh, I did quite a bit of that uh, with the $500 buy-ins. And we ended up with over, so far, uh, close to 200 people have come into the game this way at a low cost. Now we have sort of full-fledged, everybody you know pays a percentage. But at the start, uh, between Chuck and Gary... Uh, Siaka, uh, you know, they were kind enough to foot the bills and it got a lot of people into the game, including some people who have gone on to be standalone owners. Uh, a guy by the name of Ed Kelly uh, has gone on to be uh, a big partner at West Point. He ended up in on Always Dreaming and he credits DT Stables for his introduction. He never, you know, he says he never would have been in on the Derby winner if he hadn't gotten the experience that he got uh, with us. So it, it's been a real point of pride that we've gotten so many people involved in the game and and that people have, you know, taken the experience and gone on to be, uh, you know, real owners. Uh, it, it, you know, it, it, it's a money loser, but it, it's a, it's a net plus gain for the, the sport. And it's been a, a source of a lot of pleasure, a lot of frustration, but it, it also, for me, Jonathan, it, it's important that, you know, I have the experience 
doing what I've done with the stable to speak, you know, from the, the gut about having a foal die of, of rotococcus and, and losing a foal, aborting a foal, uh, you know, the things that, that happen to everybody that, that tries to be involved in the game and, you know, having, you know, having things go wrong on the racetrack, having a horse with great promise get hurt. Uh, it, you know, it helps me, you know, speak honestly and from experience on the show. Uh, and then at the same time, it, it's giving a lot of people, uh, uh, you know, a, a chance at being involved in the game. When Osable Chasm, when she won at Saratoga, and we had close to 100 people in the winner's circle, it, it it was the most incredible experience ever. I, I, I people crying. I mean, people that in their lives they never thought they would ever go stand in the paddock before a race, let alone in the winter circle at Saratoga. They had dreamed their whole life, and uh, you know that to me, uh, and and the experience that is that are similar to this. Uh, you know, when you hear from somebody who cashed a big ticket that, that, you know, has picked up clues uh, about the, the game and, and, you know, the people this week that were successful at Royal Ascot because of, uh, of Kevin Humphrey's opinions and, and they utilize them and, and, you know, to great benefit. And I mean, there's, there's emails I've saved, uh, you know, people that have hit pick sixes and so forth. And I, it, it, you know, that's, that's the part of this that, that makes, you know, the unpleasant moments, uh, palatable and, and forgettable. Uh, the, there's, there's so many more moments of, of joy and, and the highs are, are so much higher than the lows, but that's, that's part of what makes this game and the industry so different. There's nothing, there's very few things anyway, in life anymore that are, providing these kinds of moments that, where there's moments of utter despair and, and just agony and moments of incredible ecstasy. And frankly, you didn't ask this question, but I'll, I'll use this as a segue to say that the critics of the game, they don't care about the animals. They, they might pretend that they do they they might think that they care more than than we do and, and the people that that care for them 24/7 what they're bothered by is the people around the game the gamblers and and the gamblers that compete in the game as owners breeders and horsemen they're afraid of that agony and ecstasy these are people that are walking around that are afraid to experience those highs and lows. And they're resentful of people like us who want to be in this and want those experiences. That's at the heart of the critics of this sport and very little else. They, 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 don't, they don't want to be a thrill seeker. They don't want to take chances. They don't want to risk their money and their emotions. And they resent us because we do. That's very well said. Yeah, I mean it's it's uh it's it's always a it's it's a tough thing, right? Because we we know 
I mean, I know, I, I know how horses are treated and I know how, how much they're loved and, and, you know, look, there's, there's like you, like you mentioned earlier in the stock market, the restaurant business, I can name literally 500 things that there's some bad business going on in some capacity. Right. But you can't, you can't paint it all with one brush. No, of so, course not. Um, a lot. And I got a couple more things I want to get to before you go. Um, a lot of people, you know, fall in love with the racetrack and, and, uh, you were fortunate enough to fall in love at the racetrack. <laughs> and uh, I think a lot of people are sitting around thinking when they're on Saturdays, when, 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 when they're sitting around the house and, and their significant other is wanting to go uh, do something else. And, and they're saying, no, no, I, it's, it's Belmont day. I, 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 I'm not leaving right here. I have to be right here. Uh, you, you might not have to have those conversations because you, your wife uh, understands. How did you, uh, you and Tina meet? Uh, Tina and I met uh, because of the barbecue and because of her summer job. Uh, she's a school teacher during the year. And uh, like many school teachers from the Capital District, works as a mutual, not anymore, but worked as a mutual clerk uh, at the racetrack. And particularly math teachers, there, there's many, many math teachers and, and uh, you know, science, uh, computer type uh, you know, teachers that work at the racetrack during the summer. And she was working at the pavilion behind the barbecue. And I would see her, I, I, you know, I'd go to bed and we'd eyeball each other. This probably started in, in 2006, but it was in 2007 that you know, started to kind of get friendly. And then, you know, she would, when she would come in on her way uh, from the parking lot, uh, walking in to the pavilion, she would come by the barbecue I was setting up say hi, you know, maybe have a cup of coffee. Uh, and then uh, the closing the closing weekend of 2007, she actually came to the track on an off day. I think I think she took off maybe the Friday of Labor Day weekend. She took off a day and just to hang out. And so she sat and we bet and she sat with me at the captain's table and had lunch with everybody and that was closing weekend. And I was starting to get to know her and she, it was obvious that she had an interest, but at the same time, she wasn't available. She was still married. And so I didn't press anything. And it wasn't until the next summer that it became clear that, you know, she had now separated and, and the door was open so that we started to go out and, and that was not without without some rocky moments either. Our friend, our late friend, Dr. Alex Bisgen, uh, the, the famed radiologist, a, a, a very uh, radiologist from Miami uh, that uh, created some very important things in obstetrics. And Dr. Bisgen uh, is very close uh, with, 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 Mrs. Weber and uh, Ginny Moans and uh, Mustafa Fashtok, they were all, they would all come and hang out at the barbecue. And Alex started betting 
regularly with with uh, Tina. And when when the two of us started to you know sort of flirt, that she she was getting you know fed a a, a steady buildup from from Doctor Bizjen uh, on my behalf, and uh, he really greased the skids for me uh, to. Uh, you know, to get to know Tina because I was, I was still, I was still in my sort of untamed, rather volatile, uh, behavioral stage at that time. I, uh, <laughs> uh, and so there were some, there were certain things when, you know, if things didn't go right for me on the racetrack, uh, she, she was a little, a little put off, but, uh, Alex, Alex told her to bear with it. And, uh, made it very worthwhile and, and was instrumental in us really starting a relationship. And it, I never expected in my forties, I had, I had basically gone over three uh, in terms of prospective wives. And uh, I thought I was going to get married three different times and, and we, we relationships didn't happen. They didn't, they just did not. Essentially I asked three different women to, to marry me and, and, uh, for for various reasons, it, it didn't come to pass. So I never expected in my forties to get married for the first time. But uh, a very fortunate and a life changing experience. Uh, so one other way the racetrack has uh, been, you know, just so good to me and and you know has made my life better. Now. The, the, the last thing I wanted to wrap with is is obviously you've we we've talked quite a bit about your food and and I've heard you on the show over and over when you're traveling which is you know before I got to start traveling it just always seemed like so much fun it's like every big race you were there I'm like God he's, he's there he's there he's there I don't think he's there he's hanging out with all these people he's rubbing elbows with Dale Romans in the morning at Churchill how much fun would that be um so I wanted to get. You're, you're, you know, one or two, and I'm not going to restrict you to two. If you got to have that third one you want to throw in, I want to get your, uh, your food wrecks at certain racetracks. You're, you're aware when you're in town, you got to go. And, and I don't know, I know you've been, I'm sure, but I don't, I can't think of what race maybe you've gone to Del Mar for, but do you have a Del Mar, San Diego, La Jolla thing that you do ever? Uh, you know, the, the Del Mar experience is very hard for me because of the Saratoga scenario. The overlap is, is just too acute. And so my first, my first racing experience at Del Mar, I had been to the fairgrounds, not during racing years before, because I used to go to San Diego very often as part of my work with Price Club. That was their headquarters, Marina Boulevard. And so I, I had a lot of reasons to go to San Diego on the food business front. And I, just had not, for whatever reason, during the summer, had never had a chance to go to the track. The Breeders' Cup was my first Del Mar scenario. And so I, I can tell you that, uh, I mean, just the places that that I enjoyed, uh, I'll mention Milton's because my business, my food business, when I left corporate associations, you know, I worked for uh, First for Cannon Mills, the textile firm, then Procter and Gamble, and then Dan and Yogurt, uh, and then a a very big private label uh, brokerage firm. But when I started my own business, I started it uh, on the backs of Chicago Brothers Pizza, and Chicago Brothers it was four guys from Chicago that lived out on the West Coast 
that started the pizzeria in San Diego. And their frozen deep dish pizza was the first frozen food item ever put into Price Club. Uh, there was frozen orange juice. And then the second item ever was Chicago Brothers Pizza. And Craig Sheckman and, uh, and Barry, uh, they, they let me found my business in Montreal, K7 Marketing, on the pizza. And I represented them in Canada. So they, when they sold Chicago Brothers, they then turned around and opened Milton's Deli right by the track. And so, uh, you know, being being down at the at the uh, you know down there for Breeders' Cup uh, was really my first chance to to go see them, Barry Halpern and and Craig, uh, and so you know Milton's is what I've got, and and then I stayed. Where did I stay? I stayed up toward uh, La Costa, and uh, you know I found I I've, I've got very pedestrian tastes. I I am not somebody that not a highbrow dining type. Uh, so, you know, the, the fish taco type joints and, and, you know, I seek out, I seek out greasy spoons and family joints. And that's, that's my, you know, my real focus. Uh, and I, I think people, I think people prefer that. I mean, they don't need me to, you know, to tell them about white tablecloth joints. They, they want to know about, they want to know about the hidden gems. Absolutely. I, I think I, I had breakfast at Milton's one time and it was with Eric Gio. <laughs> you can imagine that was an interesting situation. Uh, yeah. um, Santa Anita, where are your, where are your go to oh, when you're God. in Santa Anita? Well, we got this. This is this is rough because I've got so many favorite places. Um, and and what I've done over the last God, it's ten years. I never. I I have yet to stay actually near the track. I've never really stayed in Monrovia or Arcadia. Uh, I, I started out staying in Alhambra and I stayed, uh, in, uh, in Azusa once I stayed, uh, you know, in, in all kinds of satellite places, uh, you know, then Pasadena. I, I, I tried to, I tried for several years to, you know, to move around so I could get, you know, a feel for, you know, more than just, frankly, more than just Pasadena and, and the racetrack vicinity. And as a result, uh, there, there's so many little communities and little nooks and cranny joints that, that I love. Um, I also am very proud of the fact that I inadvertently provided a rebirth for a lot of Santa Anita racetrackers at the, at the Dal Rey. The Dal Rey in Pico Rivera has been a racetrack restaurant for decades, famously. And it's basically equidistant between Santa Anita and Los Al. And for for certain people that, that couldn't drive all the way up, you know, didn't have time to get to Santa Anita, there was a time when you you would make a bet at, at the Dal Rey. And I got... Uh, I, I got turned on to the Dal Rey by Mike Hargrave because in the nineties, when I would go to Santa Anita and, and to the region, and this was food business related, uh, we used to go to Monty's and, and Monty's was a legendary steakhouse in, in Pasadena 
that had you know that that red banquette style clubby atmosphere and i loved monty's and then monty's closed so i i asked whatever breeders cup it was 2004 maybe or five we were at santa anita and and i asked everybody i said you know with monty's gone i said where you know where where's the a place like that and and mike said oh he said you want the dal ray so I take Tina to the Dow, and it 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 is absolutely the quintessential Los Angeles steakhouse with the tableside Caesar salad, and, and you know the whole pomp and circumstance of baked Alaska, if if that's your thing. It, it, it's just an unbelievable experience, and the place is so wonderful. And so I started talking about the Dal Ray on the radio. And and people started. I start, I started to get hearing from people. They're like, "Oh my God, we haven't gone to the Delray in years." And so now there, there there's people that I see them at Santa Anita, and they say, "Oh my God, we, we you know we started going to the Dal again." And it, it it's uh, it, it's my absolute favorite. It's Tina's favorite. Um, the year that that Ian Wilkes that uh, Fort Larned won, I, I I put together a group with Johnny D, Lou Raffetto. Skip Dickstein and Eberhardt uh, from you know, the photography team from Blood Horse. Uh, who else was there? Uh, uh, Ian and Tracy and Johnny, you know, who spent 30 years out there. And, and who else? They, they hadn't been there in years. And Jay Pribman. And I, I, I told Jay one time, I said, you want to go to the Dow? And he's like, oh, my God, I haven't been to the Dow in years. So it, I take great pleasure in, in you know, Dragging people back to Dalray. Uh, my Alhambra experience, uh, Fossilman's, the ice cream parlor, and, and, and Chris Fossilman, who has horses, uh, I've talked you know, endlessly, and, and people that have lived all their life in the area that had never been to Fossilman's, they may have had their ice cream from Fossilman's served at a restaurant. But um, I, I get a big kick out of so many people, you know, that I've that have now, be, you know, become Fossilman's fans because I, the way I've I've talked it up, uh, you know, uh, Philippe, the you know the famous French dip sandwich impresario uh, that that's become you know one of my, my absolute favorites. Uh, Jay Pridman, uh got me to start uh, going to Langers, uh, you know, which is you know, in, in a bit of a, a distressed area, but, uh, part of town, but Langer's is spectacular. It's, it, it's as good as any deli in the country. Uh, you know, I, I, I've got, I, I've got places. I got Italian delis in Montebello that, that people should try. I mean, there's, it's unbelievable. LA is, I've, I've, you know, it's funny all the years, Jonathan, that I, I would go to California I go every year to the fancy food show at the Moscone in San Francisco and loved it. And then I'd go to San Diego and LA was my least favorite trip on business because it was so big and it was so, you know, you could never really get a feel. And again, being involved in the, in the game and the opportunity to, you know, to be there so often uh, over the last 15 years, uh, it's become my absolute favorite. And I, I, I just relish every trip.
How about Louisville? Louisville, I, I've got the same kinds of funny, you know, the the, the kind of funny joints uh, that that are that are off the beaten path. Uh, the, my favorite thing during the two weeks now that we get to go to Derby, I discovered the Suburban Social Club on on Third Street. You know, right in the right in the neighborhood, off right adjacent to Southern Parkway. And it's only open on Saturdays. It's a fish fry. And they call it Green River style fish. And no one knows what that means, really. It's it's a cornmeal breaded white fish that is, it, it's unbelievable. And I, I'm a big fish fry fan. And I, you know, I worked upstate New York where, you know, in and around central New York, fish fry is a big deal. All the, all the owls clubs and the, and the Kiwanis clubs and, you know, all of the, all of those social like this, they all have fish fries on Friday nights and you, you get, you get a long piece of haddock in, in a, in a roll and you get salt potatoes with butter. And so I, I know good fish fry. I, I have never, ever had better fried fish than what they serve up at Suburban. And it, it's just so funny because there, there's so many people, this is sort of like the Dal Ray. There's people like, oh my God, I haven't been to Suburban in forever. And now, you know, they, they, they go. I, and for years, there, there's, on Saturdays, there's horsemen. They'll go get like, you know, five pounds, you know, which might be like 30, 40 pieces of, of fried fish and bring it to the barn. And you get you get loaves of bread and, and a tub of coleslaw and big bags of fries by the pound. And, and the horsemen all, you know, it's like a, it's like a fun meal for everybody on Saturdays. I, I started bringing it on the Saturday, uh, you know, basically opening night now at Churchill, but the Saturday before Derby, it's a tradition. I bring it to Darren and, and, you know, bring pounds of, of suburban up to everybody, uh, at, you know, in the, in the media center. Um, you know, there's there's sort of weird there's weird places I, I go in, in that aren't particularly special that I wouldn't necessarily you know recommend as a as a great experience for people. Um, you know, I, I I don't I don't have I suppose uh, Lemu uh, Lemu uh, John Nichols. We have a great brunch uh, every every year Derby Week uh, before Derby. We'll, we'll go to Lemu. Uh, that's the Sunday before Derby. That's fun. Uh, that's that's a great place, actually. Uh, I think I've been, oh, I think I I think I went to I went to that. I was at dinner with you guys. I think there. Yes, I was. For, I think I think Frank McGoey was with us. Oh, there you go. That's right. That's yes, yes, I yes. I've been there before. Yes, yeah, yeah, that place exactly. is really good. Yeah, Lamu. that place is really good. Yeah. That I pulled up that I pulled up Suburban just now, looking at pictures. It looks absolutely phenomenal. <laughs> <laughs> it looks so good. <laughs> it's um, crazy. You probably don't do a lot of Keeneland, but uh, Lexington. Well, I, the only thing I'll say about I, I, and no, I don't. Um, the timing is never great for me for for Lexington. But when I do go to Lexington, um, I like Ramsey's Diner. You know, there, there's like four locations, and it, it's it's the classic meat and three uh, joint. You know, where you pick something meatloaf and then three sides. Uh, you know, mashed potatoes mac and cheese and, and greens or whatever, whatever three sides. Uh, it's a Southern, you know, it's a classic Southern thing. When I lived, when I lived in Charlotte, I, I, I love those kinds of places, meat and three. 
I love, I, I think I, I've, I've been to Lexington so many times. My girlfriend lives there and so I'm there all the time, but I, I don't know if I've been to Ramsey's. Maybe I have, I just, I, it runs together. Um, all right. A couple more Belmont. Ha, well, this is, you know, this one's tough because the, when, when you're, when you're involved with Siaka, uh, you know, we, we've got a, a, we've got a very core focus of, of places. Uh, First and foremost is King Umberto's, and and you know not it's not everybody's favorite, um, but we're treated like royalty, and uh, you know have gotten over the last you know fifteen eighteen years very friendly with Chiro and and with Rosario and and the boys, and uh, so King Umberto's is is always you know the top of the list, but we you know we go we go a lot of places, um, and and on on either side of racing moments uh clinton street baking company uh our one of our partners neil kleinberg uh celebrity chef uh he and his wife dd uh and they own you know, the clinton streets uh in you know down in the lower east side and and they've got community uh in upper manhattan as well and uh clinton street baking company uh the best the best breakfast uh in manhattan uh will certainly push clinton street um, I'll, uh, I'll mention, I'll, I'll go back to ice cream because I'm ridiculous. Uh, Hildebrandt's, uh, in Williston park, uh, Hildebrandt's, uh, is, is an old fashioned ice cream parlor. It's spectacular. I, the food is supposed to be good. I've never had the food. I've only ever had, uh, ice cream treats, the great Sundays. Tina gets bananas foster there. Uh, a, a terrific experience. Uh, you know, the, the other thing is that when we're, you know, when we're around Belmont for, you know, for Belmont week and, and other times, you know, we cook at home a lot with Gary and Josephine. Um, so, you know, that we go to Pellegrino's uh, and, and pick up, you know, you pick up meat at Pellegrino's and, and we grill. So it's not always, you know, the, the dining out experiences, but uh, you know, there's, there's a, there's a narrow focus. Uh, King Umberto's and, and uh, Hildebrandt's and Clinton street. All right, I got two more, Pimlico and Gulfstream. In any order you want. Well, Pimlico, Pimlico. I stay in Catonsville, and I've been staying there really the last quite quite a while. And just the other day, this gets back to the the sliced meat sandwich concept, and the most underrated thinly sliced meat on a bun anywhere in the country. Yeah, there's the cheesesteaks we've talked about and barbecue and everything else, Cuban sandwiches, whatever you want. The most underappreciated sandwich is pit beef in Baltimore. And pit beef is, is a, a seasoned roast that then is kept on, on the, the stovetop or the grill top. And it, it essentially kind of steeps in, in its own juices. And then it's put on the on the slicer, and it's it's sliced wafer wafer thin, like melt in your mouth thin. And then it's stacked high on on a bun. And my favorite pit beef place, or the most convenient anyway, that I would I literally over the course of a week, uh, Pimlico week, I, I would I would go to essentially three places, <laughs> to G and M uh, for crab cake with Tina, 
uh, on, on the Friday night or Saturday night after the races, we'd go to the prime rib uh, in on Calvert downtown. And of course, the late Buzz Baylor, who just passed away last fall, uh, but prime rib locations in, in Philly, Baltimore, uh, out at uh, Maryland Live at Anne Arundel and in D.C. And, and the prime rib is mind-blowingly good. You know, every year uh, we, we have that session with, with Leon Blushewitz and we give out Blue's crab cake recipe. It's the crab cake that they make at prime rib. So, you know, for Friday night, it's prime rib. Saturday night, it's at uh, G&M in Linthicum Heights. But almost every other night, I'm, I'm getting a sandwich at either Kirkwood or Pioneer. And Kirkwood closed the location by Catonsville. So I've had to uh, switch to Pioneer, which takes a little bit longer to get to. But Pioneer is considered uh, probably the best pit beef shop in Baltimore. Uh, cash only. And uh, it, it's it's a bit of a, you know, a hidden gem to go find. So uh, now you got to go to Pioneer. Uh, I'll put in a big pitch in Baltimore uh, for the snowballs. Snowballs are the Baltimore dessert of choice. It's a it's a snow cone, and there's you know 75 different flavors of of juice that they put over the ice, and then they put like a marshmallow cream on it. I don't care for the marshmallow cream. It it, it freezes and it gets too chewy, but a snowball at any of the good snowball joints in Baltimore, you know, just not to be, not to be missed. Uh, I should also put in a, a plug in Catonsville for the Italian deli. Um, I want to say, oh my gosh, uh, sorry, uh, Scatino's. I think it's Scatino's, S-C-I-T-T-I-N-O-S, Scatino's, I think in Catonsville, a terrific, uh, they make a great cheesesteak. They make, uh, they make a great, Pizza, a really good Italian deli. Uh, Baltimore, I love Baltimore like there's no tomorrow. And uh, I'm so excited for what's going to happen at, at Laurel and Pimlico with this redevelopment. And, and knock on wood, uh, hope that the, you know, the redevelopment of Pimlico leads to a rebirth in Park Heights. Uh, it, it, it would be just just wonderful to, to see a renaissance uh, in, and around, in and around Hilltop. And then the last one I'll, you can leave us with is uh, Gulfstream. Well, Gulfstream's funny because Gulfstream's kind of funny because you know invariably you don't necessarily you're not necessarily staying you know anywhere. I, I you know once in a while we'll Tina and I'll stay you know in in Hallandale, but generally we're up a little further and you know my parents you know they had the place in Boynton so Delray Delray Beach uh, you know we we would stay up there i i'm not confident i and i didn't you know this year obviously ended up being a disaster uh, in in general um what do i have for you in south florida that uh, i can offer with confidence. I'll give you a breakfast, uh, I'll give you a breakfast joint that is under, under appreciated or unknown, which is bake shop, uh, Dania beach. I love Dania and it's a little tiny Quonset hut for breakfast and lunch. 
And I'm not a donut guy, but the donuts are unbelievable, and they're baked goods in general. But they do a phenomenal breakfast, and it, it it's in it's in that row where there's Grandpa's and there's uh, there's Jackson's, the ice cream parlor, and Jackson's. I tell you, food at Jackson's is fabulous. If you don't mind the craziness, if you don't mind waiting in the line, uh, they they do a a turkey Reuben at Jackson's that's out of this world. It's, it's way too much food. I mean, it, it, it's obscene. Uh, but, but the ice cream, I generally go for the ice cream and I love, uh, I love Jackson's. So that stretch right there of Dania is, is really good. Grandpa's, uh, Jackson's and bake shop. Uh, there's a, there's a little trifecta. Uh, those three, uh, we used to go to Bistro Mez, uh, Bistro Mezzaluna, uh, a lot in in uh, off 17th Street Causeway, still good, and uh, well, uh, Cafe d'Italia. Uh, how can I how can I leave out Cafe d'Italia? Uh, as as good an Italian restaurant as as there is anywhere uh, in in Lauderdale. And there's also there's also the other location in Boca, and I suppose if we're mentioning Boca, I can't I can't I got to give Carlo. Got to give Carlo Vaccarese a push at Carlo's place, Frank and Dino's. And uh, he's going to be opening apparently in, in Lexington. It'd be the first good Italian restaurant in, in Kentucky. <laughs> I know, there's no, there's no, there's some Italian restaurant that's like way on the no, beach. No, the no, there isn't. That people talk about that I've never no, been isn't. to. I've never even been there. No, I know. Exactly. No, there isn't. Stop. Don't even, don't even try. <laughs> exactly. Exactly. But, well, Steve, I, I, uh, I, uh, I speak for everyone where I, when I say, I, you know, we, I think every, the racing industry as a whole, we really appreciate your efforts and what you do and, and, and uh, giving us 15 hours a week of your time to, to promote the sport, to educate, to inform. Um, it's, it's, we're all extremely grateful. And then me, even on a more personal level, um, you know, I'm, I, it, it I'm, I feel very confident when I say that, that I don't feel like I would be where I was if it wasn't for you. I heard about Pete's book, um, listening to your show. I learned about contests, listening to Pete on your show. Um, I, some of the biggest scores I've had in, in my life have been from listening to people talk about certain things, angles, ideas, horses. And so I'm eternally grateful to you for, for, for that as well. So, um, the, the, you know, I know you won't say it. But I'll say it as long as, as well as everyone else. It's an absolute travesty that you have not won an Eclipse Award yet. There's no one that I can think of right now that uh, that, that deserves to be recognized for their efforts more than you and, and your show. And so I wanted to say thank you for myself and for everyone. Oh, it, it's very kind, and uh, you know, the, there's more recognition that means so much to me that comes on, on a, on a weekly basis from, you know, players, uh, particularly, and, and uh, you know, so many, so many nice things that, that people have, have written and, and you know, expressed appreciation, you know, for, you know, along those same lines that they, they heard something, they understood something better. They, you know, made a, a better play, uh, even if they just, you know, took, uh, took advice from, from a guest, whatever, whatever it is. Uh, and 
anybody that enjoys the game more and and cashes uh, a ticket or more tickets because of what you know we're bringing out there, uh, that that's all the recognition I need and uh, and all the recognition I I expect or would hope for is just you know people enjoying the game that that's enough for me and uh you know inordinately proud of what you've accomplished and uh you know so many you know that that's a part we haven't really discussed uh you know i had i had joe bianca on the show joe uh, you know i met him through the website and he came to work for us at the uh, at the barbecue he lived uh, here you know in the house with us he came with us to kentucky uh you know then he started to write and uh you know, got the job at, at TDN and, you know, he's become a, a, a really, I, I think one of the most polished uh, voices out there uh, among young, you know, young media uh, types, uh, Brian W. Spencer, uh, who, and I came to me once uh, early on for advice and, and I, you know, I, I, I'm immensely proud of, of what he's accomplished. Uh, you know, any, Anybody that you know is is enjoying the game more, or, or and and gaining satisfaction, or uh, anything that that comes out of it, uh, that that's all I really care about. I, I worked for Procter and Gamble, Jonathan, and one of the things that I learned at Procter, I was there five years, and they they taught you that you know you can you can have a successful career if you have, you know, certain talents and, and certain aptitudes and, and you can execute, you know, certain requirements of, of a job, but you only really advanced at, at Proctor. If you could train people, if you could translate those skills into teaching or, or training uh, and mentoring and and you know delivering that information on to others uh, that that was the most important thing being you know being a an executive or being you know part of the organization at at Procter and Gamble that st- has stuck with me my my entire life and so helping people and and you know translating information and and systems to people uh, to help them enjoy and and get more satisfaction out of their involvement that's all i'm looking for and uh you know it it's a pleasure every day to you know to sit down and and bring the game to people 3 hours a day i mean today was ridiculous how fast today went by and and you know uh, after these big days it's you're just a glow uh, with, you know, the between Ascot and and the Belmont Day, you know, and it's got you looking forward to Saturday. I mean, there's so much good about this sport and uh, th- there's so much pleasure to take from it. And I, I wish more people would, you know, would sh- strike into that vein. And the unlikely event, extremely unlikely event that you're listening to this show and you've never listened to At The Races with Steve Bick, check that out, stevebick.com. You can find it on all those cute uh, podcast apps as well. So, Steve, I appreciate the time. Thanks so much.
Jonathan, thanks for having me. I really enjoyed it. I got to be honest with you. That was pretty, uh, pretty cool. So, um, uh, really fun for me to be able to have Steve on and to talk. And I'm, I'm actually hungry now after listening to all of that. Um, I haven't been to all those places, some of them. That fish fry place that he mentioned, Suburban in, in Louisville. Goodness gracious, that looks so good. And I'm not even a fish fry guy. It just looked uh, it looked really good. So, um, like I said earlier, if you haven't checked out Steve Bick's show, if you're somehow new to the sport and, and you've uh, happened to stumble upon me before you stumbled upon Steve, uh, I recommend that you check that out. Uh, it's At the Races with Steve Bick, stevebick.com. You can, you know, you can find old shows. You can, um, the, the archives are there. Um, there's really just, you can, you know, it, maybe the first thing to do to dive in is just listen to the best of and, uh, and check out some of those. But the Tom Durkin one is one of my favorites. Um, I actually meant to talk to him about that, but hopefully we'll have Steve on again soon. Uh, housekeeping, housekeeping, anything, anything. Stronic 5 this week, as you heard. Uh, make sure you get involved with that. Got the Lone Star shows up and Adam doing the Lone Star early double Monday, Tuesdays, and Wednesdays. Um, what else? Uh, I think the Just a Game is this weekend. Should be a lot of fun. And, uh, oh, Stephen Foster. Stephen Foster, Serengeti Empress, and a grade two. <laughs> we will be rooting at the top of our lungs for Serengeti Empress uh, this weekend in a grade two. I, I, I made the joke on the other show. I was panicking when I was panicking. <laughs> When I saw that Monomoy Girl wasn't going in the Fleur de Lis, and I, I I was like, oh my gosh, I need some more help here. Serengeti Empress is going to be loose, and then it was brought to my attention that the Fleur de Lis is no longer a Grade One. So I took a deep breath and I put on my uh, my Tom Amos hat, and I'll be rooting very very hard for Tom Amos come Saturday uh, Saturday afternoon when Serengeti Empress uh, takes on Midnight Bisu. So it should be a lot of fun. I want to thank Drew. Our uh, I- <laughs> I don't know if Drew even knows this yet, but maybe he'll find out now. Uh, our CFO, Drew, our chief financial officer, is who Drew is. He's no longer our business manager. He quit. He's our CFO now. So uh, I want to thank uh, Drew. If you have any questions, holler at Drew. Also want to thank uh, Naomi, uh, Talk Racing to me, doing a great job. Had a fun show last week, and I think she's got a pretty big guest this week as well. Uh, Matt Bernier, Matty Ice, TV's Matt Bernier, uh, Spencer Spencer L., uh, thanks for taking that L, as a matter of fact, in the uh, little contest we had. Uh, I was I was over. Was then you, uh, what do they say, don't uh, wake a sleeping dog or lying dog. Don't lie a sleeping dog. Don't You woke me up, and I beat you, So, but I still love you. And then PTF, I guess, we'll thank him as well. Um, and uh, I appreciate you guys for checking the show out. Fox, uh, I think I'm on Thursday. I think I'm on every day this weekend. Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday. Make sure you check us out there. And uh, that's it. Take care. See you guys next week. I need to know everything. Who in the what and the where I need everything. Trust me, I hear what you're saying, but I like it's new what you're telling me. I'm curious, George. I hop in the Porsche. There's five on a horse. I'm ready for war. I'm coming for throws to turn to a ghost. I need to know everything. Now you be surprised at the info you get is by letting them talk, so I'm letting them talk. Gotta keep quiet, maneuver in signs, then let them and talk up their body, another one body that's just how it